Well, good morning, church family. Wow, this is so awesome. I am so, so, so happy to be up here giving this sermon this morning. Um, wow, there's a lot of people, first of all. I haven't met probably 95% of you because, like Brent said, I'm usually over at the, at the youth center. Um, so I wanted to take a moment this morning before I start to uh, introduce myself. So for those of you who don't know me, like Brent said, my name is Cohen Montai. Um, I graduated in June, and at the end of this month, I'm going to be moving out to Kona, Hawaii, to join Youth with a Mission and do a discipleship training school out there. Uh, I felt led to do international missions, and so I'm super, super excited that God has opened up an opportunity for me to do that. Um, I'm so excited for this next season of my life, and I really have this church to thank for preparing me to go into missions. I can credit a lot of my spiritual growth over the years to the lessons that I took out of being plugged into youth group here. But for me, it wasn't what I took out of youth group that left the biggest impact on me and prepared me the most, but rather what I, was, what I learned when I was able to pour back into it. You see, it gave me the opportunity to serve in worship and to lead in small groups and help plan different youth events. But definitely the biggest honor that I was given was being able to preach a handful of times over at the youth center. Every sermon I prepared took so much effort and really, really challenged me. But in the end, I had something that I was really proud of and passionate of to share with my audience. And it was always so powerful to see how God moved through my willingness to preach. Um, it's been the hardest and most rewarding thing that I've gotten the chance to do. And it's been a dream of mine for the past few years to be able to one day stand up here and give a sermon on the main stage. And so when Brand approached me about doing this earlier this summer... I didn't hesitate to take him up on it. And so this sermon means a lot to me because of where I'm being able to preach it, but also because I've been asked to preach on the topic of faith, something that we have to live by every day as Christians. So the title of my sermon this morning is The Key to Effective Faith. Just like no one wants to waste money on food that won't get eaten, or no one wants to waste gas sitting in traffic, no one wants to have faith that doesn't accomplish its purpose. And so today I want to talk about the kind of perspective that's needed in order to live out a life of faith and honor God. Because as it turns out, a big part of how effective our faith is weighs on how selfless our heart posture is. And for that reason, the main scripture we'll be digging into this morning is Matthew 16, 24 through 27. So if you'd all please rise up, if you're willing and able, and read this with me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity for this morning, Lord. I thank you for burning on my heart this message that you want your people to hear, God. I thank you that you're moving in this place already through worship, Lord. Um, I just pray over this sermon today, Lord, that I wouldn't speak, but that you would speak through me, Father, because I know... Like Pastor Jeff says, my, my lips are weak, but Lord, you're strong and you can speak through them. And I pray, Lord, that you would use me 
to really give these guys something that they can, they can use. So, Holy Spirit, I pray you'd come into this sanctuary, you'd fill this place, and that you'd move this morning. And all the church family at Walloon said, with one united voice, amen. amen. That was awesome. I can see why Pastor Jeff gets really into that. <laughs> okay, so to start off my sermon this morning, I have a crucial, very serious question, and that's this. Who of you loves white elephant gift parties? Anybody? There you go. All right. That's not a lot, and I'm not surprised because uh, they kind of suck. Um, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's where you get a gag gift, and you go to a place where a lot of other people also have gag gifts, and you spend the whole night opening up really disappointing presents and trying not to end up with the crappiest one. Crazy. I don't know why we celebrate this. Now, I can't say why you did or didn't raise your hand, but chances are if you did raise your hand, like Brant, you enjoy giving at a white elephant gift party more than you enjoy getting. You see, because it's really funny to watch your buddy open up your half-used tube of toothpaste, but what are you going to do with your Scooby-Doo Chia Pet? Let's be honest. So I was at one of these uh, a couple years ago. Crazy thing. Uh, the first present I opened up these guys will know what I'm talking about, was this beautifully framed, little, little four by six probably, picture of an outhouse. Now, wow, you're crazy. I know God is good. How do I know God is good? Because I was able to trade it up for some chapstick, which also wasn't really useful. I think I threw it away anyways. Um, but it's crazy that someone brought this outhouse picture as a gift. I think the most practical use for that was to like, start a campfire. I'd probably do that before I put it on my wall. But regardless, it's crazy that someone would bring this to a party as a gift. You see, giving someone a white elephant gift is a lot different than giving someone a real gift, right? Because when you give someone a white elephant gift, you're usually not thinking about the person that you're getting it for. Chances are it's going to get traded around anyways. And so that's why it's really hard to be intentional with this kind of gift giving. It's the whole action of giving a gift without the heart of giving a gift. Yeah, you're still giving a gift, but really for none of the right reasons. Now, receiving a gift can be a huge blessing when the person getting it for you really cares about you and wants to bless you. But it's hard to feel blessed and appreciated at a white elephant gift party because the motivation behind giving the gift is a joke. Now, I think the motivation behind white elephant gift giving is a really good illustration for how we can be about our faith sometimes. Just like the thoughtfulness behind a gift can be watered down when your heart isn't there, the usefulness behind your faith can be watered down when your heart isn't there. Living in faith, trusting God, and following where he leads you is crucial to any Christian's life. If your goal is to live out your calling and to please God with the way that you live, then faith is an absolute mandatory. Hebrews 11.6 says, and without faith it is impossible to please God because whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. This verse explains that there's a certain intellectual bar that must be cleared in order to live by faith. Ultimately, faith is an external rep representation of an internal mindset. Faith requires actions, as we're told in James 2.26, but the actions of faith flow from a heart that's set on the right perspective of who God is. Faith is just as much about your actions as it is about your mind. 
Now, taking to heart the concepts in Hebrews 11.6 will result in the correct mindset of who God is and the kind of people that he supports. But there's another crucial mental shift that must take place in order to live out a life of faith and ultimately to please God. You see, in order to have faith, you have to believe that God exists. This directly parallels what we learn in Hebrews 11.6, right? You can't go to God if you don't first believe he exists. You can't trust him if you don't believe that he can do what you're asking him to do. And so faith is, as Hebrews 11.1 says, confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for. Something that hasn't happened yet, but we believe can happen, and assurance in what we do not see. Now this word for see here refers to something that you can actually physically look at with your eyes. And so if you can't see that God is there for you, and you can't see that he'll provide, then it takes faith to believe that he will. Now believing God can do something isn't enough to work along God, alongside God in the way that he intended for you. You have to not only have the correct perspective of who he is, but also who you are in relation to him. You have to understand your place in the equation. And so to explain this, let's go back to Matthew chapter 16 and discuss Christ's standards for his disciples. So chapter 16, verse 24 reads, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. This verse accomplishes two things. First, it identifies the audience that Jesus is talking to. And secondly, it identifies the standard that Jesus has set for his disciples. So in the first few words of this verse, Jesus says who, Jesus makes it clear who he's looking for. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple, implying that he's strictly talking to those who desire to follow him. This is a crucial detail because it separates those who really want to follow Jesus from those who are lukewarm. Basically, the bottom line is this. Jesus doesn't want people who aren't serious about their faith to try to live up to what he's about to say. Now, the beginning of this verse reminds me of a sign that I saw uh, this place called the Log Slide. It pictured rocks, I think. And I think there's also a similar sign at Sleeping Bear Dunes. Basically, it's a warning, as the sign says, to not go down to the bottom of the lakeshore because it can take a couple seconds to go down and it takes like two hours to go back. You who have done it will know what I'm talking about. The sign is there as a warning against people who aren't really dedicated to climb up the mountain, or the sand, it is a mountain, let's be honest, after they've climbed down. In a similar way, this verse shows that Jesus is looking for dedicated Christians, those who are willing to live up to the commandment that he's about to say. And so the, first, the second part of this verse is a three-part commandment. The first part is this. Deny yourself. Jesus is asking his disciples here to look at their lives from his perspective. That they are vessels through which God can do his work and accomplish his mission on earth. In a more practical way, this means that you have to tell yourself, in a more practical sense, rather, it means that you have to tell yourself no when it comes to seeking your own glory in something. You can't follow Jesus and also be living for yourself. The next part is this. Take up your cross. Now this is a little harder to understand, so let's take this word by word. Or, yeah, word by word. So the, the, the phrase for take up here can also be used to mean raise up or lift up or elevate. Essentially, it's used to mean placing something, in this case your cross, above yourself. 
Now the word for cross here is the same word that's used to describe the cross that Jesus was crucified on. But again, he's not talking about a physical, literal cross, but rather what the cross represents. The cross was Jesus' will playing out in the life of his son. And so essentially Jesus is saying by take up your cross, he means to place God's will above yourself and your own life and your own desires. Now, the third part of this verse is, to, is when Jesus asks his disciples to follow me. This is the actual physical action step of this commandment. The first two parts are preparations for the third part. You see, there's a very logical order here. If you don't first deny yourself and put God's will above your own life, then you aren't going to be able to follow him. The first two steps prepare the disciple for an actual life of ministry. Now, this commandment as a whole, as a whole is all about one thing. Laying down your life for the sake of the gospel. Jesus makes that pretty clear. Now, unfortunately, the new Cohen translation has not been written yet. But if I were to paraphrase this verse, it would go something like this. The kind of people that are serious about following Jesus also have to be serious about the direction that he's headed and accomplishing the things that he wants to accomplish. So there's a lot of truth in the content of this verse, but the message, I think, really goes deeper than that. There's a lot we can take out about how the verse is structured as well. Notice how Jesus puts, follow me after deny yourself and take up your cross. Now, I can't know for sure why Jesus did this, but I can make some guesses. Maybe one reason is that this verse is meant to be followed in order. Step one is to deny yourself. Step two is to take up your cross. And step three is to follow Jesus. Here's why I think that. No one would follow Jesus if they didn't first have the mindset of someone who desires to follow him. The first two steps are intended to reshape your perspective. You can only live out the third step once you have that right. If you see God as the main character of your life and that you're only his servant who exists to worship him, then you'll live differently. The life of a disciple is the life of laying down their own will and humbling themselves before the Father's will because they understand that they exist to further the kingdom for the sake of their king. A true disciple doesn't live every day on earth for their own selfish reasons. You cannot be faithful and selfish and also, you cannot be selfish and also be faithful. That's the point I'm getting to here. So the rest of this passage in Matthew 16 continues to build on a lot of the same themes as we discussed in the first verse. The next two verses, Matthew 16, 25 through 26, read, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? This is where it gets kind of heavy. In this part of the passage, Jesus is discussing the reward for following his commandment and the consequence for ignoring it. Again, Jesus is saying that his disciples have to be living their lives for a greater calling than their own glory. Jesus is saying that being selfish in the end will cost you your life. There's no way that you can live a life honoring yourself and also walk away with your soul. And even if you could get everything, even if you do get everything that you could possibly desire in a life living for yourself, you cannot walk away with your soul. 
You can't turn around at the end of a wasted life and ask to trade in all of your worldly wealth for a second chance at eternal life. Once you've spent it, unfortunately, you spent it. And uh, in the last verse, in my opinion, is the scariest, but also the most hopeful. It reads, For the Son of Man is going to come in the Father's glory with his angels, and he will reward each person according to what they've done. Jesus will come back. A time will come when Jesus will judge the actions of his people. And those who live for themselves and those who live for God will both reap what they sowed. Galatians 6.8 says, Whoever sows to please the flesh from their flesh will reap destruction, but whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Now, this whole part about gaining one's life back as a result of laying it down isn't some kind of strictly transactional interaction. Even if you give God everything, he doesn't owe you or anyone anything. And even though you gain your life after laying it down for Jesus, that's not what this is about. This isn't some scheme to try to gain your life back. This is about laying down your life because you love Jesus. Gaining your life back in return is just God being more gracious than we deserve. And so letting go of everything, including your life, and choosing to follow Jesus takes faith in his divine plan. You can't see yourself as the center of the universe and also be willing to lay down your life for someone else's cause. You cannot be both faithful and selfish because in order to surrender to a greater calling, you have to believe that you aren't the greatest thing out there. This verse demands that Jesus' disciples have the correct perspective of who they are and understand that the calling that they're living up to is one that involves laying down their life for his cause. And if your whole life and everything that you do is centered around Christ and his kingdom, then you will live selflessly and he will be glorified. So I have a testimony of this kind of thing playing out in my own life. So in the spring of 2020, me and a bunch of other my friends felt really led to go on a missions trip to Tijuana, Mexico to build a house. And so we decided together as a group we were going to pray and fast, deny our own will, and to seek God and his will for the situation. And so we did. We really felt like God was still leading us to do this. And so we started planning the trip, and the next year, the spring of 2021, we went out to Tijuana, and we built a house. And it was awesome, and God was glorified. Now, unfortunately, some of the people that were in the original group weren't able to go, which was kind of a bummer to me because I was really looking forward to not only honoring God with our time, but also having a really fun trip. And it didn't really end up happening the way I wanted it to, which was unfortunate, but the thing is, God was still glorified with us. Because the, from, the day, from day one of fasting to the day that we walked on the build site, the, the whole trip was about something bigger than ourselves. It was about glorifying God with our time. So even if every detail didn't end up working the way I wanted it to, it was still a success because it worked the way God wanted it to. So this concept of laying down your life for Jesus can totally change the way that you see faith. In the beginning of this sermon, I talked about those who live, want to live in faith, that is, Jesus' disciples. We talked about how in order to live by faith, you have to have the correct perspective of who God is. 
You have to believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, but you also have to be living selflessly. You see, this is where people get caught up. Just because you believe that God can do something for you doesn't mean that he will. If you believe that God can do anything that you ask, no matter what you're asking, and as long as you ask in faith that he'll do it, then you're missing the point. You see, if you believe that God exists to bless you, and again, yeah, you're, you're, not, you're missing the point. You're not getting what Jesus is, is getting to here because God is not a vending machine. You see, God desires so much more for his relationship with you than for it to revolve around what you can get from him. Let me say that again. God desires so much more for his relationship with you than for it to revolve around what you can get from him. There's this verse in James, I think it's James, let me see. James chapter four, verse three, that really speaks to this concept. It reads, when you ask, you do not receive because you ask for the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. This verse points out a brutal reality. As people, we love to look out for ourselves. We think that we can use faith as a scheme to get what we want from God. Think bigger. Like I said, it's crucial to have faith, to believe that God can provide what it is that you're asking of him, but it's equally as important to ask for the right reasons. Now what James doesn't say is you don't receive because you don't think that God can give you what it is that you're asking of him. Guys, it's crucial to trust that God is who he says he is. Faith is built on trusting the character of God. But just believing that God can do something for you doesn't mean that he will. You have to have a posture of selflessness. Jesus is looking for disciples that will ask because they want to grow his father's kingdom. And if your life really isn't about yourself and gaining the most for yourself and gaining the most worldly wealth, then when you ask God to help you, you're asking that he advance his kingdom through you. Don't get me wrong. God absolutely wants to bless you. And he really, really, really wants to work through you. But he has a perspective that's higher than our own. He wants to bless you in order to help you do the thing that he created you to do. He sees what you don't see. God wants to partner alongside you as you grow in relationship with him and not as you seek your own glory. See, just as a side note, this is why the prosperity gospel doesn't make any sense. Prayer doesn't equal wealth. Some dude that believes that God can bless him, that God exists to give him stuff, is totally off. Now, it's great that they believe that God can, but again, if they're asking out of their own selfish gain, then deep down inside, they believe that God exists to serve them, not the other way around. And so God can't work with people who have big faith and bad motives but on the flip side, and this is where it gets good, God absolutely can work through someone with a small amount of faith and the right motives. Let me explain. So to preface this concept, let's go back to Matthew, or like, I guess we're going ahead because we were in Matthew 16 before. Matthew 17, 20. So this is a verse that comes right after the disciples are unable to drive out a demon. Something, interestingly enough, that Jesus had given them authority to do seven chapters earlier. 
And so this is kind of an embarrassing moment for the disciples. And after they're unable to drive out this demon, they go to Jesus and they ask him why they weren't able to do it. And he says, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it'll move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Here's what Jesus is talking about. If you believe nothing else ex about God except that he exists, that he rewards those who seek him, and that he has the power to do the, the, thing, the thing that you're asking him to do, and you ask out of a selfless heart that he may further the kingdom of God if he grants your request, then Jesus can work through you. Your faith doesn't make God any stronger or more capable than he already is. And even though he has the ability to work on his own, he chooses to partner with his creation to accomplish his goals. The problem has never been that we don't serve a powerful enough God. The problem is that we don't have a humble enough heart posture. <laughs> so let me, uh, okay, so you're, where am I getting to here? Brett, you distracted me. You kind of suck, dude. And so let me invite you this morning to take some weight off your shoulders. You don't actually move any mountains. That's God's job. Your job is to trust that he can and, and ask for the sake of his kingdom. Meaning, again, if you're asking for your own selfish gain, then don't be surprised if God doesn't move. Here's what I'm getting to. If your relationship about, with God is about getting stuff, then it doesn't matter how strong your faith is or how much you believe that God can move through you because you're still out of line. On the flip side, if your life is about accomplishing God's will for you, then even if your faith is weak, even if your faith is weak, God can still work through you. So this verse about a mustard seed and moving a mountain, unfortunately, isn't actually about moving mountains. God absolutely can move mountains. He's the authority over them, as it says in Psalm 97, 4. But chances are, that's not really what he's asking you to do. Jesus is making a point here that for genuine faith, for the right reasons, God can do anything that you ask. Practically speaking, this doesn't include moving mountains. But there is definitely something in your life that you need faith for. Chances are, you're in one or both of these boats. Either God is asking you to do something and you have to have faith for it, or you're asking God to do something that requires you having faith. See, if you're in the first boat and God is calling you to do something that requires having faith, I'd ask you to consider the kingdom that you're living for. Maybe you're thinking, how on earth am I gonna hold on to my finances and my relationships when it comes at the cost of my relationship with God? I know it's hard, and I'm sure you all have had times in your life where you, you, you feel this. It's hard to really let go of you and your own desires when there's things that you really care about, that you feel like stand in between you and obedience. So last week, Pastor Jeff gave some homework, and I want to give the same homework today. It was to read Matthew chapter 6, I think it's 20. Anyway, it's the, it's the verse or the passage in the Bible and from the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is telling people that there really is no reason to worry. I want you to read this part with the perspective in mind that Jesus requires his disciples to live for a 
bigger calling, a greater purpose than their own glory. I think you'll find that the passage makes a lot more sense when you keep that in mind. There's only two kingdoms that you can live for. Either you're living for your own glory or you're living for God's glory. As Galatians 6, 8 says, those who sow to please the flesh from the flesh will reap destruction, but those who sow to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. And so this morning I plead with you, brothers and sisters, to take God at his word. You don't have to tell God about the thing that stands between you and obeying him. He actually already knew about that before he called you. Here's the bottom line. It'll be impossible to let go and to trust God if you're still holding on to yourself. And if you're in the other boat and you really are asking God to move, I would, again, ask you to really get to the heart of why it is that you want God to move. If you think you might be guilty of praying for your own selfish benefit, then really think about each prayer before you go, think about each thing that you're asking God to do before you go to him in prayer. You know, I find myself praying for my own selfish benefit when I pray the same prayer every day. Sometimes I'll I'll wake up and the first thing I pray is, God, I pray that you would bless me to have a good day. If that's you, I would ask that you think about why it is that you want God to bless you. Again, it's not a bad thing at all for God to bless you and work through you, but you have to be living for a higher kingdom than yourself. And if you are asking God to move, then remember that you don't have to have a lot of faith in order to come to him and ask him to provide. All you have to believe is that God exists, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, and that he can do the thing that you're asking him to do. And hold on tight to that. So then, when he does come through, you can think back on that time. The next time that you need faith, you can think back to the testimony of when God did provide for you. And if you're in this boat, don't be intimidated by those around you with big faith. Rather, look at their lives as a testimony of, how, of God's goodness. Remember that the same God that came through for them can also come through for you. And so, where are we? And so, church family, the key to effective faith is living selflessly. I plead with you to search your own heart and let go of all the places where you're still living for your own glory. Because I know that God wants to work through all of you. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word, Lord, and that if we're just willing to dig a little deeper, God, that there's a lot of revelation and heart change that's there and that you want to bless us with, Lord. Um, I pray for those who are on the verge of letting go today, God. I pray that you would give them the strength that they need in order to let go, God. I pray that you would come alongside them and that you would comfort them and that you remind them, Lord, that you have a plan for them and that you really, really care about them. Um, God, I pray that you would change us all on the outside and the inside to become more like your son, who ultimately laid his life down for a greater calling than his own, God. Um, Thank you so much for today, God, and, and just this opportunity to preach to these guys.
Thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your love, Lord. In Jesus' name.